Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, if we could rebuild the internet from scratch, what would we change? Well, it's more than just a thought experiment. Researchers are actively investigating that today, and we'll share the details. Plus, we'll dig into the Sony hack and then answer a ton of your great questions, and then it's a rockin' roundup. All that and a heck of a lot more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 192 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We're streaming this episode live on December 11th. 2014. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on our live stream that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You've got to go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan. So I hear you're in blizzard-like conditions right now. <laughs> well, it's snowing. It's really not a blizzard. I just have, I just have very boring rain here, but uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm kind of a little jelly because I would prefer if instead of the, the gray rain, I would prefer the awesome snow that you get over there. Uh, so we have, uh, guess what, big show. Although last yes. week's was ridiculously huge and we didn't even mean for it. Like, I, I don't know. What's, we're like just, we have like one mode and it's stuck in big show and like you can't get out of big show mode. Uh, but yeah. we are at a we are at a moment on the TechSnap program of complete and total crisis. Total crisis because we need yes. your best of submissions so hard. Go over right now to the Jupiter Broadcasting Show page if you would. Click on the show notes for TechSnap 192 and go to our best of submission form because the holiday week, for the first time ever, we're going to give Alan the week off. Mm-hmm. It's never happened in 192 weeks, but this week what we want to do is have a best of episode of TechSnap. Twofold reasons: one, to give Alan a week off, but still have something new for you to watch. But also well, to- specifically because it's also Christmas Day is yeah, is well, Thursday that. that week. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is that is also a challenge. But also, I want something that the audience can hand out to folks and be like, "I want to tell you about yes. this TechSnap show. Go watch this episode. It's their Christmas Day episode, and it's a best of." But we need your submissions because when you have a big back catalog. It's it, it is such yeah. an impossible task. You can't be task. like, oh, you should watch TechSnap. This is here. Look at these 192 two-hour episodes and get interested. <laughs> so go over to the yeah. show notes. We'll have the best of JB submission form. We need the episode title, a link to the episode, and a time code. And it could just be a discussion or a topic that you liked a lot from the feedback, from the news, even the roundup. Anything that you can do what will help because we have to start putting that together by the time you're watching yeah. this. So and, it's like right I now. And I know like, every person that watches has a favorite moment. Yeah. And all you got to do is is tell us what it was. You have to go now so we too. Put them together because like you know, it's uh, like it's past the deadline. It's totally and we see yeah. the thing is is there's not a lot of tech snap submissions. No, so we need your help. Yeah, there. Yeah. Well, there's not that many submissions at all actually for your other shows either. I know, just, Alan. I know. Uh, you know, one guy submits like thirty things, but that doesn't help so much. They're gonna make uh, me drink, Alan. They're gonna cause well, me to well, drink. And specifically, it's like so we've done uh, tech snap 192 weeks in a row now, and then we're gonna go 193, and then for 194. You guys are going to break it by not submitting enough stuff to make a Christmas episode for Put it on them, Alan. Put it on and them. Seriously, <laughs> I did 192 in a row, and you can't do one. Wow. That is Just a gauntlet right one? there. Toss Come down, on. thrown. I love it. You're right, too. Boy, you called them out. That seems legit to me. I blame you. Uh, all right. So uh, why don't we uh, – we have a lot to cover today. And uh, hopefully we still have hopefully we still have something to give the folks until they ruin it and ruin our streak. Uh, but yeah. first, uh, let's get into we have our our first sponsor is also breaking news this week. So we're going to start yes. with IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com dot com slash 
TechSnap. That's where you're going to go to show support for this TechSnap program. Also get quick access to their comprehensive uh, downloadable guide that gives you the step-by-step key traits, 11 of them that you can go through that tell you this is why you'd want to switch to a company like iX Systems over your existing OEM provider. So that's there too. So that's text, go to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. But why we're starting here is I'm very excited about the brand new release of FreeNAS 9.3 which has been in beta for a little bit. And, Alan, this includes a pretty neat new feature that you were telling me about in IRC today, right? Which one, sorry? Oh, the yes, ZFS uh, so, boot environment. Right? Yeah, so, uh, I don't know if that's the, what it's called. but Yeah, but so basically for FreeNAS 9.3 and forward, uh, they're basically borrowing the boot environment system that was built for PCBSD. And so that means it now uses Scrub as the bootloader. And uh, when you boot it up, you have a list of basically the snapshots of the system partition, uh, and you can pick which one to boot off of. So you can do an upgrade, and then if it breaks or something, then you can always just boot it, reboot and select the, the previous one that worked fine. And uh, it also means that you can you know, purposely take a snapshot uh, before you make a bunch of reconfigurations or something to your NAS, and then if it breaks, you can just go back. And this is a really big deal um, you know, when you're using your free NAS in production and it can't be down for a long time while well, you fuss around trying to undo a bunch of configuration changes you did or something. Right. You can just, uh, you know, do yeah. it, it out that way. So this is, uh, this is, a, pretty, this is a pretty significant, uh, like, rollback if anything goes wrong because you're, the way you're explaining, to it, explaining it, uh, the upgrades happen in the snapshot environment first, right? So it never even commits it unless it, it's successful. Is that correct? Uh, right. So um, the the way they're going to do it is that when you're you have your running system, and the way boot environments worked before is you could take a snapshot of that running system and save it as a new name, and then you would do the upgrade. And if it didn't work, you could roll back to what that snapshot was before you started the upgrade. Uh, part of the problem with that is what about changes you made while the upgrade was happening, right? Especially if it's like a free NAS, you know, you're sitting there doing the upgrade, but yeah. somebody else is using the bin interface and changing something or right. whatever. Yeah, especially in a network uh, environment where maybe it's on a, like on an enterprise where there's multiple people managing it. Yeah, and there's just things can happen all over. The, uh, so with the new one, what they do is they take the snapshot and create the boot environment. Then they basically uh, start a jail of that and then run the upgrade in that. So they're upgrading the new snapshot, and then you just boot off of it instead of dealing with uh, running it on the running system. And uh, now this was designed for PCBSD specifically because on PCBSD you want it to kind of you want you know, I, I'm going to install this update and it's going to take an hour. I want to just keep using my computer, and I don't want to have to reboot as soon as it's done. <laughs> right. Because right, you don't want your user land and your kernel to be out of sync because then things don't work, especially when you're doing major upgrades like switching from. Uh, FreeBSD 10 to FreeBSD 11 because you're going to actually start having development snapshots of FreeBSD. And so with the ABI change, you have to update every application you have installed to match the new ABI, otherwise things break. Um, and so they needed a way to do that. And so with this, you can do the upgrade in the snapshot and then when it's done, you don't have to do anything immediately. Just next time you reboot, you boot up that snapshot yeah. and everything's there. I mean, so this is, these are the systems that IX systems build now. That's the software. The hardware is incredible. It's custom designed. They, have, give, you, they give you a white yeah. glove sales experience. And they got a whole experience. new web interface on the FreeNAS 9.3, which is much easier to use. Oh, yes. In fact, and, uh, uh, in episode six of uh, Women's Tech Radio, we talked with one of the uh, gals that worked on some of the new UI stuff. How about Ooh, that? Cool. Uh, yes, and uh, on their release page, they have... 
uh, a video showing some of the new stuff, uh, the State of the Union video from yeah. George Hubbard, uh, and also a more extensive walkthrough from uh, the lady that does all the FreeNAS training uh, material. So we can actually go and take a course on FreeNAS. Uh, they've uh, made like the first chapter of that uh, free as a video, so you can see uh, the basics of using the web UI and stuff, and, and see what it looks like. So, so you can see IX Systems follow is firing in all cylinders, but there's also kind of a pretty cool story that you guys highlighted in BSD now about uh, providing some equipment for uh, a project, right? Yes. Um, so there's uh, in Tanzania they uh, sponsored a digital library. Uh, so where physical books and education media are exceedingly difficult to obtain, especially, uh, you know, they don't have much room mm-hmm. to store stuff. And uh, so um, IX donated uh, some free NAS minis. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and then uh, a local college got some people involved. And uh, so what they did was they have the free NAS minis that holds about uh, five terabytes of content. So uh, they configured it to be very, very redundant so that if a drive dies... Obviously, the library is not going to be able to replace it very quickly. <laughs> yeah, um, no and kidding, so they, right? they made it so that it, um, it'll keep working for a long time. Um, and they uh, repurposed some uh, workstations from a, a lab at the college and set them up with FreeBSD as the operating system on them as well. Oh, cool. So uh, you can see in the screenshots, you can see the free NAS Mini there. And then you see the, you boot up FreeBSD and you get a graphical login screen of uh, KDE with the the FreeBSD default background image. Yeah. Uh, they also had to get some UPSs uh, because the power is not very reliable there. And um, because of load, the power tends to go out during peak time, which is like 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. when people go to bed. Oh, boy. And so in order for people to be able to use the library at that time, they had to get UPSs and enough capacity to keep running the computer. So it was important to have uh, things like the FreeNAS Mini that doesn't take a lot of power, right? We're having it have a 17-watt CPU instead of a 140-watt CPU means that they get that much more time out of the UPS. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and that's why it's really good that, that um, uh, the FreeNAS Mini is is based on that uh, Intel Atom server CPU. Mm. And right, uh, yeah, they also nice. have um, a bunch of lectures and videos and stuff in uh, full 1080p, and that's why they needed so much storage space. Hmm. And they needed computers that were going to be able to, to deal with that. That's a pretty cool project. A lot going on over there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, congratulations to IX on the new release of FreeNAS. Uh, I'd love to hear the audience's experiences with the new FreeNAS. Send those in over our contact form. Again, it's ixsystems.com slash techsnap to learn more. And uh, it's who Alan and I use for our hardware, and I think you'd be pretty yep. happy. They've got uh, a lot of great... One of the, <laughs> uh, the chosen clips for the uh, best of submission was me showing off one of the things I bought at IX when I got it delivered to my house. Oh, cool, cool. A lot of good stuff over there. Powered by those awesome Intel CPUs that I want all yes. of them. All of them. So, yeah. Head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and tell them I sent you. Yeah. They will love yeah. Yeah. You'll probably get a special Alan Jude discount or at least yeah. Al- the Alan, maybe an Alan Jude sticker. Uh, okay, yeah. Alan. Uh, our, first, our first news item, I think, I don't know if we've ever had a lead news story from the uh, New York Times blog, but here it is today. Where do we start? Where are we going with this, Alan? I have uh, So they're profiling no uh, some work that's been going on, uh, specifically reinventing computers and the internet from scratch. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's DARPA-funded research to look at how we might do the internet differently if we were building it today, knowing what we know now, ah. compared to what we knew 40 years ago when... Vinton Surf came up with TCP IP in the first place. That's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, so it's uh, many decisions were made 30 and 40 years ago uh, when Unix was built and when TCP IP happened 
that we probably would have done differently today. Um, it was really interesting. I've actually been uh, got int- at MeetBSD. I got introduced to this uh, DVD here, the uh, history of the Berkeley software distribution. Hmm. It's a, a four-hour documentary uh, set of lectures from uh, oh, okay. Kirk McCusick. Okay. Guys, that was there. Uh, and he's talking about a lot of these decisions and how things originally came to be that way. Um, and it, it's very interesting. You know, at one point, I think it was uh, IP version 3 or something actually proposed using 48-bit addresses. Huh. But then they're like, oh, you know, that, that makes each message that much longer and we don't need that. Um, but if we had stayed with that, we probably wouldn't have a shortage of IP addresses right now. Yeah, right. And things like that. And nobody ever imagined two, needing two billion addresses. But part of that is just the way we allocated them back in the beginning, right? If we had done like CIDR yeah. uh, from the beginning instead of saying, oh, well, you're Ford, so here have 16 million IP addresses or, right. or even more than that. Yeah. You know, or every college needs 16 million IP addresses. We're the worst uh, at that. Yeah. When there's lots of it, we just give it out like candy and then, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they're looking at a lot of stuff like that. But it's not all just thought experiments. Uh, they actually have some concrete stuff and uh, research that's been happening. Hmm. Uh, so one of the programs is called CRASH, which is the Clean Slate Design of Resilient Adaptive Secure Hosts. So this is looking at way to make the individual machines on uh, the on a network uh, be able to heal when they're attacked and be able to detect what's going on and just be more aware of what's happening and, and be harder to hack into. Uh, then they also have uh, MRC, or Mission-Oriented Resilient Clouds, which sounds slightly military when you say mission-oriented, but um, yes, I mean, yeah. uh, it's basically you know a cloud computing platform where it can survive being actively attacked mm. and so on. Mm. Uh, the reason this whole story came into my feed is from the other part of the project. Uh, some of this research being done at DARPA and is uh, with uh, a company called SRI and some other places, but uh, the other part of it is actually happening with SRI and the University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, where I know a bunch of the people that are working on this stuff. Oh, really? Uh, and so the first one, the big project they have is called Custard, or uh, the Clean Slate Trusted Secure Research and Development. Okay. Uh, and it consists of a bunch of different um, uh, sub-projects. The first one is Berry, B-E-R-I, which is the BlueSpec Extensible Risk Implementation, which is basically an open-source hardware software research and teaching platform. Basically, they designed a brand new processor, a 64-bit reduced instruction set processor, implemented in uh, this language called BlueSpec, which is uh, a hardware description language. Hmm. It's uh, the way you make a design of a processor to send it to a plant to get actually built at a fab, right? Along with it, they've created their own compiler, operating system, and applications that run on it. Wow. Then they took that further and built Cherry, C-E, or C-H-E-R-I which is the Capability Hardware Enhanced Risk Instructions. So they took that uh, hard, uh, processor and operating system they built, based on FreeBSD, and <laughs> extended it so that it had hardware support for Capsicum. Oh, so cool. this is hardware-accelerated in-process memory protection and a sandboxing model with a hybrid capability model. So it means that now this program over here, even if it gets compromised, can't access or change the memory over here that belongs to some other program or part of the operating system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, prevents a lot of the types of attacks that we're seeing causing problems in the first place. Hmm. Um, and then they also have some other interesting stuff. Uh, they have one called uh, Tesla, which is the <laughs> Temporally Enforced Security Logic Assertions. 
So these are um, rules generated by the compiler when you're compiling the code uh, that instrument uh, continuous validating temporal security things. So they basically come up with some rules uh, at compile time and say, you know, this variable should never change or this uh, part of code should never touch this part of code or whatever. And they actually, the compiler builds checks into the program automatically that make sure that never happens. And if it does, it purposely crashes the program. Mm. So this prevents uh, a lot of security flaws by basically building the rules into the program without actually having to write all the code every time. That's definitely uh, a then, safer way to go. Yeah, and then they have uh, another one called SOAP, which is a security-oriented analysis of application programs, which is an automated uh, program analysis and transformation techniques to help software authorize, uh, authors use Capsicum and Cherry features. Right. So with this thing, you take an existing program, and it says, all right, well, if you stuck Capsicum in here and here and then ran it on the Cherry, then uh, it would remove all these possible flaws from your program. Because if you remember when we talked about Capsicum before, uh, they're using it on a bunch of interesting places in the FreeBSD base system. Uh, the first one that ever got done, I think, was gzip. And you're like, well, why? You know, I understand that you know someone could make a malformed gzip file, and if I ungzipped it, it could do bad things. But sure, sure, sure. How is that a really big yeah. security? Yeah. Well, it, if you think about it, uh, every man page is gzipped. So if you're running as root and you look up man something then all of a sudden mm, this right. possibly untrusted code is yeah. running through gzip as root. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, the other one is TCP dump is a, a classic example because, you know, you have to be root mm-hmm. to run it so mm-hmm. it can open the network interface. Mm-hmm. And you run TCP dump specifically when you suspect something fishy is going on. Mm-hmm. Well, if someone can cause something fishy to go on, so you run TCP dump so they can send a packet that will crash uh, TCP dump or exploit it, that would be even worse. So with Capsicum on the capability framework, what you do is you say, okay, um, I'm this program. I'm running as root. I need the ability to open this network card. Once I've opened it, I would like to give up the ability to do anything as root. Hmm. And I'm not going to do anything except for read bytes from this socket that I already have and write to this console or this file that I've already opened. Right. Um, So it takes away access to the file system totally. So now TCP dump can't access any other files except for the ones it already opened before it gave up its privileges. And it can't open any extra network interfaces and all this stuff. That's nice. Uh, so uh, their design, uh, the goal is to design newer secure hosts and networks without having to maintain backwards compatibility, right? If, if we could start off from scratch, how would we do it? And then maybe we'll figure it out is either uh, we'll have to try to make a switch or we'll uh, slowly try to transition to include some of this stuff. So that's, I think, where the, the stuff like Cherry makes a lot of sense is uh, we're actually seeing, all right, so we have Capsicum and we have this SOAP thing and, mm-hmm. and Tesla that can be implied to existing stuff, right? Like Capsicum can be, is already being worked into existing things like TCP dump and, and right. gzip. And, right. and even the, the Chromium browser uh, has it on FreeBSD and uh, Google is currently working on porting Capsicum to Linux so that uh, Chrome and Chromium on Linux will support uh, Capsicum as well. Mm. And I imagine that also means it'll be have it on Android eventually as well. Right. But with things like Tesla and SOAP, that could apply to existing computers as well. It doesn't necessarily require having this special kind of processor. Or, you know, Cherry features could eventually be built into more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but isn't it with the Cherry, they've actually got hardware now. Uh, they have, uh, it's a little beefy at the moment, but it's actually a tablet that you can work on and, and do interesting things with. Yeah, they have a picture of it on the website. And uh, 
I like that it has uh, Ethernet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, without having to maintain backwards compatibility with legacy systems, you could really make a lot of changes to the Internet, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's always been the biggest problem with changing the Internet, right? It's the reason why there's still people out there running, you know, SSL v2 and v3, right? Even though we have TLS 1.2 now. Right. Uh, there are servers that haven't been upgraded, and there are clients that haven't been upgraded to it to support the old stuff anyway. And then, you know, it's the same problem with uh, trying to switch to IPv6. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, it will have IPv4 hosts that won't be able to reach the IPv6 part mm-hmm. of the network. And, mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff like that. And then that's also why spam is such a large problem. We can't change the email system because nobody wants to break email. Everybody depends on email. Even though everybody agrees that the way the email protocol is set up is is not good. Right. There's not really a you, way to change it. You wouldn't build it like that today. Right. Uh, you know, people have proposed many different systems, and some of them are probably good, but yeah. nobody's just going to... No. It's not going to be possible to change how email works that way, right? What good's a system? It's like, well, right, I have this new secure email, but only other people using this system can send me email. Yeah. And and, uh, and then it's essentially, that's, you know, there's a lot of private networks that can do messaging now. I mean, Facebook has its own messaging platform, but it's not yeah, some it's, universal standard. Exactly. And I don't know that we're going to see that. Right. Something like that. It just doesn't seem like we're in the environment for that anymore. Yeah, well, even if we were, I just don't, you know, even when we were, uh, everybody wanted to replace SMTP. But, yeah, yeah, it's know, true. No one's come up with a plan of a way that you could actually have some transition. No, it's, and it's, I don't know if it's possible. No. <laughs> I don't think so. It's too late, Alan. That ship sailed, I think. And so I have a quote here from uh, the second article. Uh, Corporations are elevating security experts to senior roles and increasing their budgets. Uh, for example, at Facebook, their mantra used to be move fast and break things. Mm. It's now been replaced with move slowly and fix things. Hmm. Uh, you know, now that they're not a scrappy little startup, yeah. they have to respond differently. But, you know, for performance regions, uh, when hardware and programming languages were designed 30 and 40 years ago, the idea was, all right, we'll let the software take care of the security stuff because, you know, capability-based processors were really slow. But, you know, uh, nowadays we're like, hmm, we have lots of performance. What we need is some security. Yeah. And yeah. but it's like, well, you know, as we've seen even with ARM, you know, uh all of a sudden having this different pro- processor architecture, you know, things don't just work exactly. Mm-hmm. And so on. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the Cherries project aim is to change this, right? By implementing capabilities and sandboxing as a security mechanism in hardware mm. that allows the hardware rather than the software to enforce the protections and it can do it faster and and more reliably probably. And uh Preventing an unauthorized access or modification to various regions of memory by a malicious or compromised application. Uh, but and we have a, a link to a second story at the New York Times blog where they talk about other stuff and they say, uh, you know, if you look at a graph of plane crashes per flight or deaths from plane crashes per number of flights happening in the year or whatever, it keeps trending down, especially uh, after the FAA was introduced and actually you know made airplanes keep logs on maintenance and stuff to make sure that it was actually happening. Um, but for security incidents, we just see the numbers going straight up. Of right, course, right. the problem with the, the metrics for this stuff is what do you include as a, an attack, right? Does getting a phishing email count as being attacked? Does Depends on who says know, it does, right? <clears throat> you know, does, does the firewall blocking a cookie because it's a tracking cookie or a spyware right, cookie right. mean that that... You know, and so does every time your antivirus ping, pings you about anything, is that an attack? Exactly. 
Because, you know, was, oh, there's like 100,000 attacks a, a week. It's like, yeah, that's not exactly measuring apples to apples. No. Yeah, I agree. With uh, you, you know, there's not a target level intrusion going on <laughs> 100,000 times a week. Uh, and, yeah, uh, I guess this is kind of bleeding into the other story. Um, in the roundup, we have one. Uh, Brian Krebs was on 60 Minutes. Mm. And uh, actually, so was the guy from FireEye, and they were talking about this. Uh, they actually kind of broke down the target breach and how that went undetected. Specifically, like we mentioned, they had monitoring systems, and their monitoring system detected the attack of the guys breaching target to steal the credit cards. The problem was that it also detected everything else that ever happened, yeah, right. and they were just used to ignoring it. Or, you know, they couldn't see the one or two real incidents among the thousands of unimportant ones. All the noise, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, Alan, and uh, we will talk about that a bit more. Any other thoughts on this story, though? Uh, no. All right. Well, then, uh, why don't I take a second and talk about Ting? There's something really, really exciting happening over at Ting. So mm-hmm. let's get started. First off, techsnap.ting.com. That's where I need you to go, techsnap.ting.com. That'll give you a $25 discount off your device. Or if you've got a Ting-compatible device... $25 in service credit. Now, the monthly Jupiter Broadcasting bill is around $26. So if you're going to get $25 in service credit, your first month's almost paid for right there. Uh, and if you have a contract you need to cancel, Ting's willing to pay up to 50%. It's crazy right now. They have a really good deal going on right now. Normally, they'd pay $75 per line. But now they're going to be paying up to $150 per line. So when you combine our $25 credit, that means you could get $175 in credits. It's going to pay for quite a few months. But here's the really big news. Uh, Ting's going GSM in 2015. They're going to take their no contract, no early termination, pay for what you use model, and now they'll be available on CDMA and GSM starting in February of 2015. So that'll remove the requirement to have a Ting-compatible device. Basically, right. every device will work with Ting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any, yeah any, any GSM device that uh, they, you put, you can go over to their uh, device checker right now and uh, plug in your device ID, and it'll tell you if it's compatible. Essentially, you know, most of the GSM devices that are unlocked are going to be able to go over there. And you'll be able to switch between CDMA and GSM. You'll be able to easily port your number in the Ting dashboard. If you say, okay, I want, I want, when people call me, I want my official number to be the GSM number. There'll just be a button to do that in the dashboard, because Ting has an awesome dashboard where they're going to integrate all of the management in there. They've been outlining all of this on their blog post. They just wrapped up a Google Hangout session on it, too, for a Q&A. I mean, Ting is really on top of this. This is extremely exciting. And yes, that also means like the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus will work on the Ting network. So go to techsnap.ting.com. You can take advantage of their special offer. A limited time offer ends, uh, I think, at the very beginning of the year. To, sp- to pay up to $150 per line, you have to get canceled. That's, if, you get, if you're in a contract, this is a great time to take advantage of that. $150 per line. Plus, our twenty-five dollar credit is going to be a great. You're, I mean, you probably won't even you won't even be paying for your cell phone plan until in the next year. I mean, it's really going to be a, it's great. And then by then they'll have GSM too, which is gosh, this is I'm so excited because it's a Nexus Five user. I'm already going to get to take advantage of this right out of the gate. So go to techsnap.ting.com. See what I've been talking about for a long time. They've been my mobile service provider. No contract, which I love. I just click and I have hotspot and tethering. It's just boom. It's just turned on. It's just my data usage. Awesome dashboard and no hold customer service. It's really mobile that makes sense. And it's, I feel like I'm in control of the mobile plan. And I have mm-hmm. so, I have, I really have so many nice things to say about it because I've used them now for a couple of years. It's a flat $6 for my lines. I've got three lines. I mean, I just nothing but good stuff. Techsnap.ting.com. 
And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Go check, go guys, go take advantage of their special ETF relief program right now. That's a great deal. So, uh, Alan, a story that brings me right back to the early days of TechSnap is uh, where we go next. Uh, like the really, 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 really early days of TechSnap, like almost 190 weeks ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> almost. Uh, and uh, we. Uh, we are not in the Wayback Machine, though. It is actually a Sony hack. It's a Sony Pictures hack this time. Yes, this is Sony Pictures, although it kind of extended across like the entirety of Sony, I think, yeah. uh, by the time we got there. But Where do we start? Uh, uh, and most of the stuff we've seen is from Sony Pictures. This uh, is a so, big story. Yeah, and uh, I guess my first story was that, yes, this is not episode three of TechSnap, where we talked about okay. Sony Breach <laughs> for the first time. Yeah. This is a completely different thing. Yeah, wow. Even so though it's three and a half years later now. Wow. Uh, but... It was funny when I went back and looked at our show notes. Don't look as nice back then. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. We weren't using Markdown yet. Was the problem, I suppose. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I didn't realize that came in late. Wow, this we're getting old. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, but um, specifically, um, hackers who have identified themselves as the Guardians of Peace, the GOP, uh, claim to have stolen as much as a hundred terabytes of data from Sony. Thanks. Uh, so you know, a uh, hundred terabytes, it, Alan. Yeah, so the, the the leak so far has been 40 gigabytes, and they're like, well, we're trying to figure out a way to actually share 100 terabytes of data, which I understand why that's complicated. And that actually kind of brings up the question, how did they manage to exfiltrate 100 terabytes of data from Sony without anyone noticing? I, I, I sincerely was going to ask, like, how is that even possible? How is that even yeah. possible? Like, if, even if you have a one gigabit internet connection, like I do at my house, uh, uploading 100 terabytes would occupy the line 100%, 24-7 for 10 days. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. if you're uploading that much data, yeah. you know... Uh, the only way I could figure it is... it's coming from one place, but it, like, yeah, it, it just seems torrents like... Torrents over months or yeah. sneaker net? Like, even sneaker net would be hard for 100 terabytes. Yeah, That's dude. hard drives. Yeah. I know. That's why it seems like 40 gigs seems doable. Still, yeah. like 40 gigs, you well, might like, notice yeah, 40, that. 40, you 40 might gigs, notice 40 like, gigs, actually. Well, no. You could notice 40 gigs. You mean you might not, but you, you could 40 notice. 40 gigs fits in my pocket. Should, no, I mean, but I mean, if you transferred over the network, supposedly well, you have edge devices that, monitoring, well, like, you might notice. You know, if, you, if you're a giant corporation, with, yeah, you like, might not. It's possible. You probably do have an internet connection that can handle that. Uh, so 40 gigs seems reasonable, but uh, terabytes? Yeah, terabytes, like. Is nobody watching your traffic graph and be like, why is this one server uploading 100 terabytes to the internet? Your traffic graph for months? came from a bunch of different places. But yeah. I, yeah. Just, uh, or it's a total BS number. I, either it happened slowly enough that it's, uh, it was hard to notice, or it happened all at once and then yeah. nobody noticed soon enough. Or, but, it's, or it's bogus. You know, I would notice an extra 100 terabytes of bandwidth coming yeah. out of my place just because, yeah. you know, it would put a dent in my bill. Yeah. No kidding. Um, but, you know, a lot of the data probably was compressible. You know, you're talking about stolen documents and so on. That's obviously easily compressible. But some of the haul apparently was uh, unreleased movies, uh, which apparently are showing up on torrent sites already. So maybe so those files aren't really compressible. Maybe it was they got access to a file server and the file server's total capacity is 100 terabytes. Ergo, let's just assume 100 terabytes compromised. Right, although if they want to be able to have that data, they would have to copy it before, you know, Sony has since shut down their network completely, uh, 
and you know, people actually relegated to using pen and paper to do their so, job for a couple of days while they uh, so the, they're like, so let's this, talk everything down and then bring it up as we make sure each part's not compromised. So the idea would be they go into this file server, they get 100 terabytes, and on and they this... They actually copy it all if they wanted to keep access to it because Sony was obviously going to take away the access once they found out they were... Yeah, and on this file server, uh, what, there was MKVs of uh, Sony's greatest hits? On Probably there? not MKVs, <laughs> okay. but you know, Sony does have to make the files that they then send to Netflix yeah. for Netflix to encrypt and then put on the, the network. Oh, I or, thought I, Netflix encoded it. Things like that. Okay. Uh, Netflix encodes it, but you, they have to get the original yeah. file from somewhere. Yeah. Right? And so those get delivered. Uh, one movie studio that we were going to work with at one point was going to send us GBG encrypted uh, like MPEG-4s or something, mm. and then we were going to run those through our system. Uh, so yeah, uh, so far all we've seen is about 40 gigabytes of data, which is mostly leaked internal documents. Yeah. Uh, it says the data dump includes employee criminal background checks, salary negotiations, uh, emails, uh, doctor's notes explaining medical rationale for leaves of absence, uh, spreadsheets containing the salaries of about 7,000 employees, uh, social security numbers of 3,500 employees in, uh, in one document. Uh, documentation of the company's operations, ranging from scripts for unreleased pilots, including a new show uh, from Vince Gilligan from Breaking Bad, hmm. and uh, the results of sales meetings with local TV executives. And I guess uh, but there also was... apparently quite a few embarrassing emails with uh, various movie directors and celebrities and so on. Yeah. Apparently, one director uh, thinks that. Uh... Now I'm blanking on it. An- Angelina Jolie is a minimally talented brat. Right. And uh, Jessica oh. Alba's uh, um, alias that they refer to her, so you don't know you're talking about Jessica Alba, is Cash Money. Mm. That was revealed as well. Yeah, and uh, there were some racist things said about of Obama by one director before a fundraiser and lots of things yeah. that are causing headaches. Hey, yeah, there's, there's the real Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, so my biggest takeaway is that when will companies learn that a spreadsheet is not a secure place to store sensitive information? Right? They just had a spreadsheet of everybody's salary and they just left it laying on a file server somewhere. It's like, now obviously you don't expect other people to have access to your internal file server or whatever, but it just seems like they didn't take any steps at all other than, oh, that file server is not accessible from the internet or whatever. Yep, yep, yep. Um, it just seems like, you know, this type of stuff could have happened in other, you know, this hack could have happened in other ways as well. Uh, you know, here's a this I think is insightful. Is in 2007, uh, Sony Pictures. Uh, 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 he was the executive director of information security for Sony Pictures Entertainment in 2007. And in an interview with CIO Magazine, he said it's a perfectly valid business decision to accept risk of a security breach. He said, "I wouldn't invest 10 million to avoid a possible one million dollar loss." That guy, by the way, still running security at Sony today. Yeah. Well, his point's correct, but this is not going to be a $1 million loss. No. You probably should have invested some money in <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in a memo to uh, Sony employees, the Sony Pictures uh, Entertainment's co-chiefs uh, Michael Layton and Amy Pascal said, while we're not yet sure of the full scope of information that the attackers have or might release, we unfortunately have uh, to ask you to assume that information about you in the possession of the company might be in their possession. Uh huh. And it's like, well, we hope out of decency they won't release it. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. But here's some free credit monitoring if that does happen. Da da da. Yeah. Uh, in total, it uh, looks like they got 
uh, so far they found uh, 47,000 social security numbers, including those of celebrities, uh, freelancers, and other contractors that have worked for Sony. Ugh. So not just people that actually work for Sony, but people that have worked with Sony and got right. paid, and obviously. Uh, but yes, uh, social security numbers, a bunch of celebrities and so on were leaked as well. Um, they also have uh, some Sony employees received uh, email threats. It was like, your family will be in danger and yeah, so on, Yeah, uh, which is pretty creepy. Yeah. Uh, then uh, BuzzFeed has a bunch of uh, detail of what they found uh, by going through the, all the files. Um, and then Gizmodo says that Sony hack was worse than thought. Uh, apparently exposes there's uh, budget documents, uh, layoffs that were coming up that they hadn't actually announced yet. Uh, and Oh, really? Know, unreleased movies and a bunch of stuff. Oops. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when they get all the email going back and forth, it looks like uh, there's quite a lot of, uh, being Hollywood, there was quite a lot of uh, not very business-like emails going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too surprising, I suppose. Yeah. Did, they, you, uh, did you see uh, the, uh, too, that uh, uh, that they, uh, well, actually, no, never mind, that's in the roundup. I won't spoil it yet. We'll save it for okay. the roundup. There's, a, there's, an, there's, an, there's an additional new twist to the story, but I guess it's probably best to save it for the roundup. Okay. Uh, the Washington Post has uh, some coverage uh, where they talk about it exposing spats between different directors and, and you know, everybody. Uh, and Gadget has uh, what they call the whole story. They have a bit more detail in summarizing all the information you found all over the place. Hmm. Uh, but I think uh, the most interesting one uh, was Gizmodo had one where they say uh, George Clooney um, predicted the hack. So in an email he wrote to uh, the the... Uh, Amy Pascal, the co-head of Sony Pictures, yeah. back uh, September 5th of this year uh, with the subject, knowing this email is being hacked. Wow. <laughs> he wrote, how much fun are we going to have? Uh, uh, he's talking about uh, a movie he wants to do, I think, and it's you know all out of context, but this is, how much fun are we going to have? The stakes are higher than Citizen Kane. If we tell the truth in a compelling way, Rupert, being Rupert Murdoch of Fox, uh, won't get Time Warner. CNN won't be Fox. Uh, it's so exciting to do this film. And for those of you who are listening in, I'm a son of a newsman. Everything will be double sourced. So come on with your lawsuits, fuckers. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I so thought obviously he wasn't meaning that he knew GOP hacked because it possibly hadn't happened yet. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was just writing this email with the bent that he was sure that somebody was going to get to read it at some point. That's you know what uh, so I guess so Sony Pictures uh, here's the uh, Fusion dot net has some quotes from uh, employees. One employee said Sony's information security team is a complete joke. We'd report violations and nothing would happen. Uh, they had a quote unquote hack on their file server about a year ago that didn't go public, but it turned out to be just another uh, employee in Europe let him left himself logged into the network and the file server right up on his machine and left it at a cafe and walked away. <laughs> So somebody just sat down at the laptop and had access. That was the quote-unquote hack. So there's, their IT security has been a total joke. Yep. Uh, and that's where the biggest one comes up. Uh, security firm Kaspersky Labs reports that a new sample of the Destover malware, a malware family used in recent attacks on the network at Sony Pictures, uh, was found bearing a valid digital signature that could help it sneak past security screening on Windows systems. No. You know, we've seen a lot of bigger enterprises now have things where only signed apps can run or only apps on certain lists of known good software and so on. Yeah. Uh, but when it has a valid signature, it gets through those. Uh, the interesting thing is that the digital signature was stolen from Sony Pictures. 
<laughs> so uh, it's not clear whether the stolen Sony certificate that was used to sign the malware was used in the attack on Sony Pictures, or if after they attacked Sony Pictures, they, they managed to then. steal their certificate so that their next version can be signed by Sony. That's a mess. Uh, but it'd be even more interesting if it was that they had hacked Sony some other way, got the software signed, and then were able to get into the whole network because they had right. malware signed by Sony. Wow. <clears throat> Probably. Is, uh, uh, the newly, uh, maybe not the day here, the newly discovered variant of the malware was signed on December 5th. So that's after the hack. Oh, I think. so, okay. But well. So that basically means that not only has the Sony hack exposed all of Sony's secrets, uh, but it also exposed their secret key. <laughs> And means that now everyone's exposed uh, to malware signed by Sony. Yeah, wow. So hopefully that certificate can be revoked quickly. Um, so uh, apparently it attempts to connect to two different command and control servers, both previously associated with the malware that took down Sony pictures, uh, one at a university in Thailand and the other associated with a business customer on uh, Time Warner Cable. So just two other places they had hacked previously. Uh, according to a post on the Conspiracy Labs uh, global analysis page, the malware alternates attempts to connect between the two IPs, pausing between attempts. Uh, the version is also used to appear uh, or to spread the wiper malware that took down Sony Pictures. Uh, was compiled just days before the attack and included hard-coded instructions for attacking infrastructure within Sony's network. Hmm. So these attackers were fairly competent in that they modified the malware to make it uh, very specifically go after things they had learned uh, about the Sony network from their uh, surveillance. Uh, and, we, uh, and we have a, uh, an email in the feedback that kind of gets into uh, some how, how they kind of identify the source of some of the malware too, which is, kind of yep. fits in well with the story. This is... Uh, uh, but yeah, the, the Ars Technica has the best coverage on that, uh, the, the digital certificate angle, and they link to the Kaspersky research. Very good. This is one of those stories that uh, will play out for a, for a while still. Yep. Uh, and hopefully we'll get more technical details on it. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, because obviously uh, Ars Technica seems to suggest they are familiar with which malware was used to break into Sony, but nobody else seemed to mention it. So huh. uh, hopefully we'll see more about that uh, coming up soon. Alan, let's take a minute and I'll tell you about DigitalOcean. Tis the season for a brand new TechSnap promo code. So go go over to DigitalOcean.com and bring the promo code SNAPDECEMBER with you. SNAPDECEMBER, one word. All lowercase. So what is DigitalOcean and why? I'll tell you. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. I've been playing with a new droplet. I set it up. It's so crazy easy. I said Ubuntu and Ghost. And I've been playing with this thing called Ghost. It's really cool. I've got an idea how to incorporate it with one of our shows. And it allows me to do a lot of stuff just from Markdown. And I, I, it's something that was been on, it's been on my to-do list. But the fact that I was able to so quickly go over to DigitalOcean with one button, deploy an Ubuntu system with Ghost already set up, it took it from a, boy, this is something I should do, to something that I, I actually can do. And I think you should check it out because I think you'll find the same is true for you. You can get started in less than a minute with your own server. And the pricing plans start only $5 per month. It'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. You can check them out on their G Plus page or on their Instagram page. They've got some great pictures. But it comes down to this interface. This interface that made it possible for me to go from a, hey, I should do this, to actually, you know what? 
I'm going to do this. Hey, this is done. Yeah, and it, it really makes that, it really, that is, for me, it, it gets me started. It gets me going, and it gets me having fun, and then I'm captured by the project, and I'm all in. And it's so awesome that I can go over there. And for you, especially if you're just getting started, you could use the promo code SNAPDECEMBER. You can get a $10 credit. You could try out the $5 rig for two months. You could play with anything. And they've got so many great options, one-click deployments for all kinds of stuff, but you can also roll your own rig or even play with CoreOS. They have better tutorials than anywhere else these days, and more added all the time. Just a new one that was added this morning that I was looking at going, you know, I think I'm going to do this. It was like, this is, it's amazing. And the reason for that is because DigitalOcean is willing to pay for those tutorials. Go check them out if you haven't seen them yet. And we have a link in the show notes if you're willing to write and maybe get a little, get a little money for it. They'll pay up to like $200. That'd be a great little extra holiday spending money. If you want to write a tutorial, they have editors that will work with you. Uh, yeah, here it was. How to create a Calibre ebook server on Ubuntu 14.04. That's actually mm-hmm. like right up something, right up my alley, something I'm thinking about doing. And, there, and it's a very comprehensive guide. Great, great sets of tutorials, and they're getting even better. If you want to contribute, you can go over there. We'll have a link in the show notes. If nothing else, you can go look at them and uh, take advantage of them. So use the promo code SNAPDECEMBER when you check out over DigitalOcean. And for you geeks, which, you know, if you're listening to TechSnap, there might be a few of you, DigitalOcean has a great write-up on their new DNS system. Uh, they talked about what they needed to do, what they were replacing, and why. And they even give out – they lay out the new architecture that with a with a, a nice diagram of how they have it set up, how they keep the systems up, how they, how they manage it, how they went online. Anyways, it's a really nice write-up over on the DigitalOcean blog. You can go to DigitalOcean.com slash company slash blog to read that. It might be interesting to some of you sysadmins out there. Go over to DigitalOcean.com. And use the promo code SNAPDECEMBER. SNAPDECEMBER will give you that $10 credit. Try out the $5 rig. Two months. Try out. If you want something for like holiday pictures, if you want something to go post like notes, things like that, check out Ghost. And it's really easy to get started. Or if you want to do your own GitLab deployment, go check out DigitalOcean. makes it really easy to do tons of great stuff. DigitalOcean.com. SNAPDECEMBER when you check out. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So, Alan, I think that's all the news we have for this week. Yep. Uh, a little birdie tells me that uh, a new BSD Now episode is out. Must be rigged, episode 67, which is uh, yes. the halfway point. It's time to go download episodes. Get the, see, we'll give you a heads up, though. We can go get the HD version. See, Alan and all his local, because Alan mm-hmm. records local. On yes, BSD now. For, that, for BSD Now, it's recorded local. So, so you look even better, helpful. Alan. You look even better. I mean, right. as far as Canadians go, you're a good-looking Canadian. But, I mean, now you I mean, really... When you watch BSD. So go, go get that HD version of episode 67. Uh, anything you want to mention about this one? Uh, we interviewed the developer of uh, one of the developers of Bitrig, a uh, fork of uh, OpenBSD, hmm. designed to be uh, to use more modern stuff. They replaced GCC with Clang, uh, Target only like x86 and ARM, uh, or AMD64 and ARM. And uh, uh, biggest thing is they have support for uh, GPT, so you can have bigger disks and Nice. And a lot more modernization type stuff. I will give one last desperate plea for the best of submissions for the TechSnap yes. show. It's linked at the top of the show notes. Uh, we need them. This is we're recording a double episode of TechSnap next week on the uh, the next Thursday, which is the 18th, right? Yes. Yep. We're starting at 11 a.m. Pacific. We're going to record two episodes, and then we're gone Christmas Day. So we need your best of submissions. Now is down to the wire. It's the last time, last chance we have. 
So we'll have that linked in the show notes. Also, that also means it's a great opportunity to get a question in or anything like that since we're doing two episodes next week. But Alan, all right, all right. Enough with the news shenanigans. It's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread over at our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com like our first submission this week. And it comes in from The Horse is on Drugs. And uh, The Horse is on Drugs writes, <laughs> Hey guys, I've set up a computer to run PFSense at home, uh, not for the first time. Uh, it acts as my gateway firewall and PPO- PPOE dialer for my ADSL connection. Previous to this, I was using my modem router to block my kid's internet when required, a.k.a. the go-to-sleep signal. <laughs> Boy, I'm starting to know that, what that one means. Uh, this mm-hmm. was achieved by blocking all WAN traffic to a particular MAC address. I would like to replicate this setup on PFSense, and I can. However, the interface is a bit out of reach for my wife, and using it on mobile is a bit of a headache, especially compared to the relatively simple layout of the TP-Link router I was using previously. What I'd like to know, is there a way to trigger a firewall rule to turn on and off to make sure? He wants to make sure we understand he's talking about from the LAN side, not from the WAN side. He says, I don't want to put it on a schedule, as I would need to manually deactivate this for the holidays, etc., if anything changes, the majority of the time the device is sending the command to turn off would always be iPhones. I would love to be able to make this as an easy process. Is there a way to do this or maybe a way to have a proper mobile layout for PFSense? Love the show. It helps me get through my 150-kilometer km uh, round mm-hmm. trip from, Aust- uh, oh, wow, in rural Australia every day. Mm-hmm. Well, how about that? So, Alan, what do you think about remotely triggering uh, a firewall rule? So lots of ideas for that, but nothing that is going to be easy to do for my iPhone. As far as making the PFSense interface easier to use on an iPhone, I'm sh- I'm not sure that's something that anyone's really thought of before. Because normally, you you know, you're not going to be editing all the firewall rules from your iPhone, but yeah. simply just turning one thing on and off uh, seems like something you'd maybe want to be able to do from your iPhone. Um, yeah, it's like. You can SSH in and do this or that, but that doesn't really help in this case either, does it? Yeah, I was almost wondering, like, you know, I wonder if there would be an iPhone app that could, because there is SSH apps for iPhone that maybe could execute commands. So but you would make the connection, and mm, then it would execute the commands on upon connection. Right. Yeah. Even that, you know, that seems like it'd be fragile enough that you, it, it's a good chance it won't work for your wife on her iPhone or whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what if, if you took that, away you'd that? You'd almost have to make a. Uh, an extra, you know, part of the web interface that just has a big button for on and off or something. What if it was part of a desktop? Is there an easy way to remotely connect in and flip a firewall rule on and off? Right. Well, if you have an SSH user, you can, you know, uh, on Windows or whatever, you can have yeah. pretty set up to yeah. use the PSSH or whatever to actually do a command. Uh, and then you can modify the PF rules that way. Um, and you would almost have to have two separate pf.com. So it gets complicated when you're trying to do this on a PF sense because you have to not break the way PF sense right, works. Right. Right. You know, you, uh, if I was doing a, my machine, I have a pf.conf cause I, my machine is just vanilla FreeBSD, and I could just have a pf.conf dot nighttime or whatever. Uh, and I could just switch which one it loads. Uh, right. But it gets a little more. Yeah, right now the only one I can think of is an SSH client for the iPhone on the LAN. But like Alan said, it's yeah. a little wonky. 
and and just well yeah it, just an ssh client won't do because his wife won't be able to go in and type the pf commands no it'd have to uh, do like a post connect thing yeah i guess you can make a user that does that although again pf sense because it's based on like right, uh, right. mini something is it called mono wall yeah, um, oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's a very stripped down system yeah. so there's a lot of yeah. that stuff is kind of missing and and it's kind of a firmware image type thing I'm pretty sure I thought they had a feature for this, but again, that's scheduled, like you were saying, and that's not what he wants. Um, now, to do, uh, you know, someone had specifically mentioned about uh, connecting remotely, and that'd be bad, and so on. But there's actually a system for that. You know, if you want a slightly more complicated thing, they have a system for that. Uh, it's called AuthPF, and uh, basically, it's a, a, a daemon you run as a shell. Mm. So you can actually configure a certain user on uh, your firewall, and when you SSH in from, say, a conference hotel or something, mm-hmm. it then creates a firewall, a dynamic firewall rule, allowing your the IP address that SSH in and logged in successfully to go through the firewall. I like this. So you can actually have, a, a say, a, a, a private network at your home or whatever, and then when you're outside somewhere, you SSH into it and authenticate with an SSH key or whatever, or two-factor authentication. Right? You can have it set up with your uh, the Google Authenticator or whatever and an SSH key. Um, and once you two-factor auth, the IP address you're coming from is now allowed through your firewall. Uh, and then when you close the SSH session, that IP address gets removed and is not allowed through the firewall anymore. I love it. And allows you to dynamically... Uh, and there's also a version uh, authpf-noip, which doesn't do it for the whole IP address. For example, when you are you know, know you're going to be coming out through NAT and that you don't want to trust everything on that IP address, mm-hmm. depending how paranoid you want to be. But, you know, that seems like a really cool idea for, like, a Bastion host is that, you know, you have to SSH into this box and log in successfully, and then you're allowed through the firewall to SSH into other boxes or whatever. Uh, so it's not necessarily entirely stupid to be able to change firewall rules remotely. It's, yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah. No, I, there's uh, lots of reasons to, for it. But it's, you would, you, only once you're authenticated by SSH would you use an PF change the rules. The reaction in the uh, subreddit was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't want to change rules remotely. And that was... That's well, a, well, specifically, he said enable, disable the f- whole firewall or something is kind of the way his question read originally, right? Hmm. He wants to remotely activate slash disable firewall rule sets. Uh, and so, obviously... Being able to just remotely turn the firewall off seems like a bad idea. What about instead of doing it through firewall rules, doing it through like open DNS? Because then you could just log into the open DNS account and turn on the restricted rules, and then those names would stop resolving. Possibly. Uh, but again, the, I guess his point here is he wants to completely cut off the internet for the kids when yeah. it's time for them to go to yeah. bed. Yeah. But he doesn't yeah. want to schedule it so that they're allowed to right. stay up on. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember that being a problem for a friend of mine, actually, uh, when we used to play online games together. And uh, his router would automatically kick him off at 10 o'clock. It actually had the opposite effect of what his parents intended. He would wait until 10 o'clock to start doing his homework because he'd want to get all the internet oh, up until right. he could cut of off. Oh, right. Of course. Instead of... So he'd stay up late doing his homework. <laughs> if they were smart, they would have actually made it turn off between when he gets out of school and like right. dinner time or something. Right. So he would do all his homework then and then after right. dinner he would stay on the internet. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, and I remember sometimes on holidays, you know, his parents would forget to turn it off or something and he get kicked off even though he didn't need to be yet. Uh, that is so frustrating. So, yeah, as far as needs, it's like I'm kind of picturing creating, adding an extra PHP file to the web interface that you can just bookmark the link directly and go to it on the iPhone and just turn it on and off or yeah, something. Yeah, seriously. Nothing simple. I don't have a good answer for that one. Check for the plug like someone too, could though. make a plug-in. Yeah. So, but, you know, you, it's definitely a plug-in somebody should make. Yeah. 
Some some ideas to try, though. Uh, all right. Eddie writes in with our next one. He says, Chris and Alan, great work on the show. I love tuning every week. I got to stop now or else Alan might tune out, though. He says, I'm a sysadmin net admin by day and a tinkerer by night. I work with a large EMC VNX at work and am familiar with storage pools, LUNs, iSCSI, etc. I know FreeNAS gets mentioned frequently, but I've been struggling with some confusion for a long time that I haven't been able to clear up. What is the delineation between a Z pool and a VDEV? I can create additional Z pools with one or more logical VDEVs, can I? I know VDEVs make up a Z pool, but when I create a volume in the GUI and I type Z pool status in the CLI, it shows the volume name and the type of RAID. Z, Stripe, or Mir. There's no option in the GUI to create a ZPool or create a VDEV. I'm just not sure how ZPools and VDEVs map out in the GUI, and I know if a VDEV goes belly up, then the containing pool does also. So I'm hoping it's possible to make more than one ZPool and do so and create it in VDEVs under it. Uh, please, for the love of God, explain what exactly happens in a file system when I create a volume in the GUI. Any clarification would be helpful. And he also includes a screenshot, Alan, to try to visualize uh, what he's having a yeah. problem with. Part of the problem here is that FreeNAS, in order to stay compatible with what people have already thought about for NASes, had to, it has the generic terminology, not the ZFS terminology. So uh, a couple things. So normally on your system, you only have one pool. But that's not a bad thing because you want all your free space in one place. Otherwise, you end up with some free space over here and some free space over here. Neither enough big enough for what you want, mm. but in total enough free space. And yeah. Uh, so the general point of ZFS is to have only, only one pool. You can have separate, but you don't usually want to do that. So then he has a screenshot here where he's got some pointers and is slightly confused. Uh, so you see he does one Z pool status. This shows you the pool. This has nothing to do with any of the file systems, and this is where his confusion comes from. Uh, so you see it says pool test status online scan none requested config, and then it shows the name test. That is just the pool name again. So that's what you expect. So that's the Z pool. And then under that are your VDEVs. In this case, he has one VDEV called RAIDZ1-0. Uh, that's your VDEV. And then that VDEV is made up of, in this screenshot, three disks. If one of those disks dies, your whole pool is still fine, right? Just that VDEV, RAIDZ1-0, will mm. go into the degraded state because right. one of its members is dead. Right. Uh, it, but, however, if you lose the whole VDEV, right, if two disks in a RAID Z1 die, then, yes, the whole RAID Z1-0 uh, VDEV dies and your whole pool is unreadable. That's why if you need to be able to sustain, uh, sustain multiple disk failures, you need to have RAID Z2 or RAID Z3. Uh, a pool can consist of multiple VDEVs, right? In a mirror pool, you would have multiple VDEVs, right, the two disks or four disks or however many disks you want. And you can also have one, uh, like your RAID Zs can also, right? If you have a, a machine with six disks, you could do a RAID Z1-0 of three disks and a mm-hmm. second RAID Z1 of three more disks. And then you would have two VDEVs that it would stripe across, and then each one would be a RAID Z1 and would give you more performance. Mm-hmm. So then in um, the GUI of FreeNAS, he's created a volume called test. So... Um, I think what he's missing is the ZFS command. If he runs ZFS list, he'll understand what's happening there. Ah. So he has a pool called test on which he has created a file system called test. So if he looks, uh, he'll have like slash MNT slash test slash test. Right. Uh, so all he's done is create a volume called test on the pool called test. Right, okay. And is confused about what's happening there. That makes sense. You don't create VDEVs when you, uh, you can see the other button there, import disks. When you add disks, that's when you create a VDEV. 
and in general, your free NAS, you only have one pool. Because uh, like 99% of all cases, you only want one pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you don't want to fragment your free space. You want to have it all available. And then each different volume has access to all of the space as they need it. And you can set quotas and reservations and so on, but that's kind of not germane here. Okay. Uh, so, yes, uh, you'll probably understand everything if you run ZFS list. So you have one pool that's made up of multiple VDEVs, and each VDEV can be either one disk or multiple physical disks. Um, and that's about all you really need to uh, think about. Um, it's ZFS list where you'll actually see all the volumes you've created. When you, um, I was slightly confused at first before the screenshot when he said he created a volume. I'm like, well, there's ZVOLs or ZFS volumes, which are a virtual block device. Uh, again, those are a data set, right? Um, those will show up uh, in ZFS list, not in ZPool status. So ZPool is just uh, looking at the pool and the physical disks. Then ZFS actually looks at your actual... Uh, file systems and volumes and, and so on. Yeah, the screenshot was very helpful. Thank you, Eddie, for saying yes. that a lot. Uh, so the test where it says ZPool question mark, yes, that's a ZPool. The second time it says test, that's actually the ZPool again. The RAID Z1 is your VDEV, and then the GPT ID, blah, 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 those are your three disks. Then in, your, uh, in the screenshot of the UI, the first test is the ZPool. The second test is the volume you created. It's not a ZPool or a VDEV. The VDEVs don't show up in the volume manager. They show up in the pool manager or whatever, I think. And you audio listeners, we have a link to the screenshot in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, Eddie. He's in the chat room right now, too. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Also, check out the, uh, the ZFS um, part of the handbook uh, over at um, the freebsd.org slash handbook, and then go to the ZFS section, which I think is chapter 20. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, it has a bunch of, you'll see the output of ZFS list and uh, some, with some different setups and you get a better idea of, of what you would expect it to look like. And it shows, uh, if you look in this section for like attaching a disk, uh, you can actually see what it looks like when you have a pool that only has one disk and you upgrade it to a mirror and then all of a sudden you have two VDEVs and okay. stuff. Oh. So you can see like before and after yeah. the, the output. So it makes it all make a lot more sense. That'd be very useful. Examples help. That's why the documentation I wrote is full of examples. There you go. That helps. Uh, so Douglas wrote in with an idea that honestly struck me while we were chatting last week, and I didn't vocalize it. He says, hello, Chris and Alan. I enjoy many of the JB shows, in particular TechSnap. And I was considering your discussion on hyping up the computer bugs and viruses and Trojans with regards to Heartbleed. I actually found the name to be helpful. The grouping of all the CVE numbers under one umbrella, etc. As the other vulnerabilities were discovered, they were being added to the discussion of Heartbleed. So a simple search uncovered more and more as the days went on. This would not have been so easy without the hype. So he says, there's the good. Poodle. Yeah, that's just asking to be treated by the media (laughs) as, you know, what? Overall, I would say it's similar to how the media and people report severe weather information. Hurricane Katrina, for example. Perhaps... It could benefit from the same technique. Start out the year with a list of names, words, and cities, and each of the bugs that comes up gets given one of those names. Let us say, let's use cities and also grade the bug virus depending on the severity. Storms are just as dangerous as software, so why not? Anyways, I had fun coming up with the metaphor. Also, tell Angela that I appreciate women's tech radio. I only, I already feel a great connection to the women who change careers to enter technology. It mirrors my own journey. Uh, getting my first job at tech job at the age of 34 after 17 years in hospitality. The fear, the challenge, and the rewards. Happy holidays, Douglas. He's Douglas Codes in the IRC. Yeah, I'll give a a, a plug. In fact, uh, 
Episode uh, four just came out, and episode five has a very fascinating interview, and episode six features a system administrator from IX Systems, so a couple of good episodes coming up very soon of Women's Tech Radio. And thank you, Douglas. Happy holidays to you as well. Um, so in general, part of it is that uh, storms, since they don't generally have unique characteristics, <laughs> right? Uh, it makes sense. You know, Any storm is pretty much the same as any other storm, so... Just having them named alphabetically makes sense. Yeah. For bugs, I, you know, sometimes having the clever name made it make more sense. Because it fit with the vulnerability. It, only, it really yeah, was a one-two only, punch. But you would have to know about SSL and the fact that there was a heartbeat yeah, feature. Yeah, I know, know. But once you do, it's so great, Ripley, though. It's so great. Uh, and shell shock and so on. But, you know, I under, it, there might be some value in just having uh, names that way instead of... Um, Trying to come up with clever ones, right? The yeah. hard part, I think, would be the volume. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we're already looking at yeah. like nine thousand CVEs a year. How are you going to come up with nine thousand unique names Yikes. a year? They just need uh, to use like an MMO name generator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Alan, this next question: How you know you want one that anybody would be able to spell without you know when you hear it on tv oh, that would be, be a able problem to spell it into google and so on and, and so, something that makes for a good logo gotta have a good logo remember yeah and and that's where it's gonna come it's, okay from. so something tells me our next question when you got that new connection in the house you must have tried this so uh google foo writes in says i've been having some issues over the last few months with my isb boy brother i hear you on that one this month my unlimited internet usage he says, and this month I have unlimited internet usage and want to cost them as much as possible. Torrent's already running. I've uploaded three terabytes last month. I'm in Australia. <laughs> I have 100 megabits down and 40 megabits up. Any ideas for keeping my link saturated? Now, I thought this is just a good question for, for load testing too, Alan, just generating a lot of traffic. Um, basically, it depends if you have a place to send the traffic to. <laughs> um. The big problem there is, you know, usually you end up paying on the other end as well. Somebody suggested a Bitcoin full node. He says, I've gone through 100 gigabytes in a month and you're doing God's work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've always ever had the opposite of this problem. It's like, how do I not use all of the bandwidth? Yeah. Um, iPerf is nice for just generating traffic, um, but you have to have someone on the receiving end. Yeah, I, that's the hard part. Is it's it, see with the and nice if, thing about if that person isn't willing, then that's basically a denial service attack. Torrents, uh, uh, Bitcoin, and maybe a Tor relay would all be ones that would just use traffic. The Tor relay would use up a lot of traffic, although there are legal yeah possibilities there. Uh, yeah. You could get in quite a bit of trouble and also just violate your terms of. How about just uh, not doing? I'm it? guessing in particular <laughs> in this case, yes, you're actually going to violate your ISP's terms of service. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I most mean, places, when they offer you unlimited internet, it's with the caveat that if you use a lot, they're going to turn you off. I totally understand. Like, I am having so many problems with an ISP that I spend a lot of money on per month. But the it is a fiber is connection. That, yeah. Even if you maxed out the 40 megabit up 24-7, that's, uh, well, 40 megabits, that's only 10 terabytes of traffic. Yeah. Uh so you could, um, you know, at that rate, uh, your problem is that it's not going to cost your ISP anything. Yeah. It never does anyways. They can easily afford it. They're just a bunch of anyways. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> 10 terabytes is going to cost them like $2. But, you know, here's what you should do. 
is do use this time wisely. Download the entire TechSnap back catalog. Why not? Go grab all your Steam games. Save them locally. Why not? Right? Uh, Star Trek Season 7 just came out on Blu-ray. You could back that up. Why not? Like, have at it. Just, But you don't have to go crazy and try to hurt them and punish them because you're just going to be a drop in the bucket, my friend. I'm sorry. Yeah. Basically, even if you had... Ten times the upstream. You, you, would have, you would struggle to cost them a yeah. few dollars. All right. Evan writes in with a question that relates back to the Sony hack. He says, hey, guys, love the show. I had a question regarding malware. When I listen to your podcast or any, read any security-related article, there's lots of stories regarding big-name malware like Stuxnet and Rain and all the others where stories come out. And I tend to see a statement along the lines of, well, we were able to determine that the malware was written in English, thus the country of origin is likely insert country. My question is, how are they actually able to determine the natural language used when programming the malware? Is it because certain languages like Chinese and English compile differently than others? Thanks for the great show. Keep up the work, Evan. Uh, usually it's because they're using decompilers to get back some of the original source code, and they can tell things from that. Character and sets just, and whatnot? Yeah, like uh, even if you, um, on Linux and, and Unix in general, there's a, a program called Strings, and it finds blobs of text in a program. And you can oftentimes find chunks, uh, big chunks of text in the program. Uh, and those chunks of text were obviously written by the programmer or added by the compiler, but not usually. Um, and from that stuff, you can tell. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they, they do steps to obfuscate it, but it's the well, same way it, they figure out how the malware works to try to detect it in, in virus scanners and so Would on. it be possible to, uh, you know, if I was a state... And I was if I was and I was creating malware. Well, would anyone it, could purposely, you know, try to. Yeah, you know where I'm going with that. Steal comments uh, from some other application that was written in Russian and blo- drop them in the program as a false flag. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I was going um, with that. But you know, in general, oftentimes we're saying this was written by someone who speaks Russian. That doesn't necessarily mean they were in Russia or anything else. That's true. They could be. Uh, they could be working for anybody and just speaking Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a good question, and it's it's one of the little. I saw the way I what I've kind of sussed out of all of this is it seems like there's lots of data points they use, and character sets from other languages and things like that are one of the things. They also look at things like where the command and control servers are, who the targets were of the attacks, and things. Depending just, on the way the malware works, uh, there could be footprints for, or, or um, fingerprints from how it was compiled, what compiler they used. Yeah. And so on, and I could tell what kind of machine the person had and what language it was in, right? you know, what the locales were set to. Right. Uh, okay, so uh, just a little couple of PSAs uh, in the subreddit, uh, JK2342, th- uh, is wondering if anybody else is going to the, th- the 31st Chaos Communication Congress. Uh, and that's coming up soon, the uh, 31C3. And uh, if you are, I'll have a link in the show notes to this post, and uh, you guys can uh, tech snap it up. Like I don't know what we we don't have a term for tech snap. Me, you can snap. Uh, I don't I don't know, but you can meet. I up don't, it was uh, very interesting when I got to meet a couple uh, tech snap fans at uh, Asia BSDCon last year, or uh, or I guess that was this year. Still this year, <laughs> uh, you know, at various conferences, meeting people from BSD now and tech snap. Oh yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, it'd be cool if uh, people that are going to uh, CCC could meet up as well. It is really neat to meet up with uh, your fellow audience members. Hey, and uh, if you are interested in development potential around Jupyter Broadcasting, Mm -hmm. uh, Android apps, Roku apps, uh, maybe just making your own desktop application, we are going to hold a developer summit on Monday the 15th at 1 p.m. Pacific. That's just after Coda Radio on Monday. We're going to have an open mumble room. 
And we'll also uh, have the uh, Jupiter Dev, that, uh, which is on irc.geekshed.net, and it's, the room is Jupiter Dev. We'll be taking questions and suggestions uh, for replacing the website and updating it, uh, designing an API around Jupiter Broadcasting, app mm-hmm. updates, and uh, talk about some community projects. We're going to start doing more of these, too. And uh, if you're a Tech Talk Today Patreon over at patreon.com slash today, you'll also get a recorded version of the session released to you. So if you'd like to uh, talk to us about things you'd like to see from Jupiter Broadcasting as a platform or things that you've wanted to do but just didn't have the data available from us, that'd be a great meeting to come in there. If you've got thoughts on new website stuff. I'm going to try to be there to help uh, to deal with, obviously, with stuff about the new website, but also, uh, you know, people building the Roku and... um, uh, BMC apps right. and so on that uh, you know Could make sure they're using the right URLs and stuff. Too, yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> cool. Uh, That'd be great. Live stream in the VOD and stuff and make sure we can get all that sorted out. Whoop, whoop. So that'll be on Monday the 15th and uh, with the holidays we're not going to do them every week but we'll probably every few weeks yeah. be doing these and then uh, once we really get rolling we might do it more regularly. And then I guess one last whoop. plug uh, we need your feedback because we are recording two episodes next week uh, our regular weekly episode and one for the uh, the uh, the first, I think it is. Yes, so, the New Year's uh, holiday. So that means lots of potential for answering email. So go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, click the contact link, choose TechSnap from that dropdown, or go to techsnap.reddit.com and submit to the subreddit. Because we, we, uh, we are at inbox zero, I believe. Maybe with the exception of one email, maybe, or two. I think we're close to inbox zero because we tried to get a lot in here so that way we could start afresh for the next two episodes. So we'd appreciate that. Okay, y'all. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. A lot of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first one is related to the Sony hack. Boy, that's just been sprinkled throughout the whole. It's been a smattering of Sony hack all week. Uh, And this one, well, it's being reported by Recode, who has confirmed it with two individual sources, quote-unquote, familiar with the matter. And those two sources claim that Sony Pictures is rentering is renting is renting uh, space on AWS to do a denial of service attack against those that are seeding some of the stolen content we talked about earlier in the show uh, to take off like sites that have it listed, like the tracker sites, and to take down. Uh, well, what this site, what this article goes to point out is like maybe some of the larger seeders in the torrents. I don't know. Do you think so, uh, Sony could actually be doing uh, a, a denial, a, a hack against the hack? Somebody ha- could have tried to do. Well, a denial of service attack is not a hack. But, but you know um, what? People have gotten in a lot of trouble the people for people that are uh, f- that are seeding or whatever, trying to flood them off or take down the websites. Yeah, uh, is possible. However, uh, you know, once someone reported that to Amazon, Amazon would shut that down. I would think so, right? And so, uh, when Recode asked Amazon for a statement, Amazon kind of. Um, adeptly dodges the question by saying um, the activity being reported is not currently happening on AWS which makes it sound like Amazon shut it down either because they saw it happening or because it was reported to them that it happened. But we have seen law law enforcement officials we've seen the media jump on denial of service attacks as a form of, of an attack of, as a form right. of yes. aggression. And, uh, there was uh, a report I read recently that said that a lot of Denial of service attacks are used to cover up something else going on. Yeah. Right? Keep them busy while you do something else. Right. Um, 
So uh, basically, the, I guess the hard part here would be proving that it was Sony that was doing it. Yeah. Seems like Sony should be able to follow the money, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, you know, Amazon is probably not very willing to give up that data. Yeah. Uh, all right. Our next story, you mentioned earlier in the show, Krebs, Brian Krebs, Krebs on Security, famous for his blog that we uh, often are reading from, was featured on CBS's 60 Minutes. Yes. Uh, so they have, uh, they did a special on like, you know, now that it's been a year since the Target one, it's like, oh, you're going holiday shopping. What actually happens when you swipe a credit card? Except for they didn't actually go into how the system actually works. Right? Like, they, they kind of mistitled it. Like, the, the, the thing, the 15-minute the segment is actually very good. It just doesn't actually answer the question that they pose in the title. <laughs> right? They didn't actually just walk through what actually happens when you swipe your credit card. Uh, I could do a bit more research, and that would be a good segment on TechSnap. But anyway... Um, so they interview a couple of people, uh, one of the guys from FireEye, which is one of the big um, security consultancies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also Brian Krebs and some people from banks and uh, from retailers and so on. Uh, but yeah, they spent a bunch of time with Brian Krebs and they talk about uh, you know, how he does his stuff and how he finds stuff and how he reports it to the banks and how he works with the banks and so on. Uh, but also the guys from FireEye are talking about uh, you know, the target breach and how, you know, the guys originally got in by hacking the HVAC company in like Pennsylvania and then spreading through the network and how, you know, target had fairly advanced security software. I think, was it Symantex? I forget which one we talked about it. I think, I think it was. Yeah. And it detected the attack happening. The problem is it detected everything that happened. And so there was so much noise, so many alerts on their monitoring system that they just got used to ignoring them because most of them were nothing important. Uh, so when the big important one did come, that nobody looked at it, right? They Basically, the boy who cried wolf type thing happens, and uh, so they just ignore the, the alerts and don't see that, oh, yes, this is compromised, there's this bad activity happening, and we should actually do something. He also, on his blog post, has a great behind-the-scenes picture where they had so much equipment for the living room that they had to, had to spill over into the kitchen. Into the kitchen and stuff, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing is only 15 minutes, and I think only about a quarter, of, uh, a third of that is with Brian Krebs. Right. Uh, but they spent six hours with them recording. <laughs> yep. Uh, although it looks like a couple of places where it looked like a the hacker movie or something like he had something on one of the screen that was like an animation or something mm-hmm, happening mm-hmm. uh where it was like you know zooming in and like a grid and stuff that's my uh, 80s computer sound effects yeah uh but you know uh it, it gives you an idea and he talks about you know how the credit cards end up for sale and and how only five percent of the cards from the target breach were sold uh, were sold before they all got canceled um but that even that with uh, 40 million cards, uh, 5% is still 2 million cards. And at $20 a pop, that's $40 million. Jeez. And uh, I guess the interesting one that he was mentioning that the guys from uh, 60 Minutes were just aghast at was um, if you buy stolen credit cards in big batch and some of them don't work because they get declined, they refund you for the cards that didn't work because they want you to come back and buy more cards, right? Um and so the, the guys were uh, from uh, 60 Minutes were just like, y- you mean that the, the, the criminals do refunds? <laughs> <laughs> they have guarantees? It's like, you know, you struggle to get that from Target sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Jeez, that's, that's a great commentary on it, the whole situation. Yeah. Um, all right, Alan, 
uh, I have a I have a roundup story that it's like it's 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 one part how to and good advice, but it's also just a great reminder of how important physical security is. Uh, I've linked to a article on resetting your root Linux password if you forgot it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Two methods: uh, one is doing it from a live CD like a Kali Linux and getting in there and doing it that way. The other me- method is like uh, going in through Grub. And I just wanted to link this here as something that might be useful for people that have yep. uh, that find themselves in this position, and it also like a reminder the about physical second security. Second thing I ever taught people in the Unix class. It's a good like, one. Install the OS tomorrow. How to reset the password you forgot last week? Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and then, but then I taught how to lock it down so you can't do that. Now, uh, their thing might actually get around that on Linux, though. So normally, what you do is drop into single user mode or boot into single user yeah, mode, yeah. Uh, which doesn't prompt for a password, mm-hmm. and then uh, mount the file system, read write, and change the password. Because mm-hmm. when you're in single user mode, you're root, and so you can just change the password. Now, uh, you can, I don't know how it works on Linux. On FreeBSD, in the etc tty's file, you can mark the physical console as insecure. So now when you try to boot in single user mode, it says, oh, hey, uh, give me the, uh, the root password before oh, cool. I let you into single user mode. Ah, uh-huh, very fancy. Now, that locks other people from doing this password reset, but it uh, doesn't stop people. Uh, it doesn't help you if you forget your root password. Mm. Uh, yeah. Of course, with both of those, you know, live CD and you can just change the password, right? Uh, right? right. Uh, so that's where having an encrypted partition comes up, right? So that your, your password's stored in such a way that you need the password to mount it to be able to change it. Yeah. Cool. Um, that's all, that, is, that is sort of the ultimate way around this, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, now, in their thing, is rather than booting in single user mode, they pass a variable to replace init with bin sh. So it just starts a shell <laughs> without even starting init. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think if I don't, you can't actually do that on FreeBSD. I don't think, but that would get around the whole locking down the console thing because it's init that reads the TDY files and then locks imposes right, that rule. Right, right, right. And right, so, right. Um, although I don't know how old this posted, but they're talking about Lilo. Is there a Linux distribution that's used Lilo in the last like five? Kali years? might be the one that does, and that was the last oh, okay. they 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 okay yeah. Yeah, that might be. Uh, okay. Uh, no, SystemD can't fix that. No. <laughs> this next one I just put on the roundup because I thought this was this is a really interesting issue. There's a core uh, graphics. What's that? Okay. You oh, you know what? I did skip. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's my turn. All right. All right. Well, so, uh, I'll, a, a, I'll switch over. Go ahead because this is okay. the uh, hacked payment card processor that sent it in yes. plain text, which is egregious. Yes. Uh, so a payment processor called Charge Anywhere. Uh, which basically, well, I guess, was a cell phone app or something. A lot of people charge credit cards from anywhere. Was transmitting <laughs> data in plain text, which is horribly. First of all, a payment processor submitting data in plain text is bad. A one that specifically about doing it mobily is like eight times as bad. And then uh, when they get malware on their side of the network and it steals all the, possibly all the data for every card charged in the last five years, that's even worse. That's bad. That's bad. Yeah. So I definitely recommend you go check out the Ars Technica story. But yeah, um, they were definitely violating the payment, uh, the PCI DSS, the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, in a bunch of places uh, by not using at least SSL. Uh, Dan Gooden, the uh, the writer over at Ars Technica, also has a post about data sent between phones and smartwatches could be wide open to attackers. Yep. So that's another interesting post he has. Okay, now this is what I was mentioning. It's not really a big deal, but it's it's to me seems potentially like maybe other programs could be having the same problem. There's a bug in Apple's core graphics in OS 10.10 10, 
where it's logging input data to the slash temp directory in Firefox. Uh, security researcher Kent Howard reported in an Apple issue present in 10.10, where log files are created by the core graphics framework of OS X in the slash temp local directory. These log files contain a record of all inputs into Mozilla programs during their operation. <laughs> so it doesn't affect users before 10.10, .10, and I, this, this article only talks about Firefox, but I wonder if it could be uh, applicable to other applications as well. So uh, something to keep an eye on. So Impact rated like, as uh, high. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like uh, Apple accidentally left a debugging feature yeah. in, the, uh, in the production release. Well, and it's just, it says it uh, looks like what happens is uh, in OS 10.10, .10, uh, the extra logging is turned on uh, by default for any applications that use a custom memory allocator. Um, so rather than using the system malloc, Firefox uses JE malloc, uh, BSD license one that's faster. Uh, or was faster than the default on most. And uh, because of initialization bug in the framework, um, mm. it causes the Mozilla products to uh, to log everything. Right? So basically, it's a key Jeez. logger. Yeah. Right? That's a hell of a um, bug. And slash TMP is usually pretty wide open. Right? People can't delete your files, but they can read anything. Pretty much there. anything can read it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so Mozilla's addressed this in an update to their products where they will uh, initialize JE Malloc with a special flag to make it not log. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, we probably expect to see a patch from Apple on that at some point as well. Yeah, and it could be applied. It could be happening to other applications as well. Um, yes. So uh, anything. That you just, uh, so yeah. If you go into your slash tmp and look for uh, yeah. cg log underscore the name of the application, send us a screenshot if you get a, something really really yes. egregious. Uh, that sounds like a bad one. Or grep it for your password. Just don't send us a screenshot with your password. Just in an it. aside, we have Yosemite on one machine here in the studio, and it has been a production pig. It feels much slower. So maybe there's other things happening too under the hood. Well, uh, the, the, uh, logging everything you input yeah. uh, is definitely going to slow down. Hey, you have a story in here about the BPG image format. What's this, Alex? Yes. So uh, Fabrice Bellard, who's a very famous computer science guy, uh, he started FFmpeg, and he started QMU, and he holds records for calculating the largest prime number and the most digits of pi in 90 days, and... Uh, on and on and on. <laughs> you know, it's like there's not usually one guy that's involved in so many of the big things. Anyway, so he uh, has uh, come up with a new image format, BPG, that's based on the HVEC, the new uh, uh, Im uh, video format. Oh, wow. The new, uh, what's the high? Yeah, uh, X264. Video codec. Yeah, the X264. X I 265. Yeah, right? oh, yes, right, yes, X265. Sorry, that's, that's or H265. Yes, yeah, the right. new high efficiency video yes. codec. Yes. Um, so he's, uh, it's a replacement for JPEG that gets better image quality in smaller file size by using the HVEC uh, uh, this compression. This is great. So he has a comparison. And it's open source. Uh, but the biggest reason uh, that this is a big deal and might actually become adopted is it doesn't require browsers to support it. No, because I'm doing it right now in Chrome. a decompressor in JavaScript. This is so... There is a huge difference between, like, the Mozilla JPEG or, uh, like, the really, really standard JPEG versus uh, P BPG X265. There is a huge difference. Now, I don't know if... Well, like, when I don't you think look at the very last up. ones, you see that the 29 kilobyte, the images are fairly close together. But when you crunch that image down to... Uh, 5.8 kilobytes or 5800 bytes the jpeg looks like ass yeah. and the uh, bpg looks almost as good as the uh the 
28 kilobyte version. Now I'm. Version. We're looking at this over something that's compressed and encoded for the audience, but yeah. here in studio, I can see a huge difference, like in the sky. I see a major difference. There's no sky. Oh, I'm looking. Picture. I'm sorry. I'm, he's got some demo. Uh, ah, he's got I'm a demo where the, you can the Lena one. You can drag the you can drag the cursor and it'll show you uh, the oh, BPG versus yes. the standard encodings, and it's really like impressive. Like looking at uh, what's this? Is the fancy Onion Dome churches in uh, Russia? Yeah. Yep. Ukraine or whatever. Yep. And swiping back and forth, and you can just see the amount of artifacting that just goes away in exactly the same file size. Yeah, you can really see it in the sky. Uh, but the big things here are that uh, there's a library out. There's a Windows binary for compiling it uh, or for generating the images if you can't obviously compile the binary on your operating system like Linux and BSD. Um, it supports metadata like EXIF and ICC and XMP and so on. It's, uh, it even supports lossless compression, uh, although by default it's lossy. Uh, supports for up to 14 bits per channel so you can have high dynamic range and so on and supports... Uh, all the different chroma formats, so grayscale, uh, CYMK, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and like you said, it's based on the HEVC open video codec standard. Yeah. Boy, this is good stuff. Good uh, find, Alan. And yes, it's supported by most web browsers uh, because it has a, he wrote a JavaScript decoder, which is uh, 71 kilobytes, and you can stick this in the source code of your website, and it uh, automatically uh, renders the images. So unlike uh, other problems... Uh, or other image formats that people have proposed that would have required the browsers to start supporting it before it could be used. This one basically has backwards compatibility with browsers by having the JavaScript decoder. This makes me want to use X265 for the video, too. You know, yeah, and it's all open source, right? He's He posted the source code for the library right here, and it's uh, good to go. Yeah. Um, just poking at it quick. Looks like folks in the chat room can see the difference on the live stream. Nicole in the chat room says that... Uh, yep. Uh, she'd like to see uh, this for photographers. I think I agree. That could be really yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, it's definitely uh, stores better. I'm just trying to see if they have the license. Ah, LibBBG and BBG Inc. are licensed under the lesser GPL. Okay. Uh, the FFmpeg part is under the LGPL. Sure, and sure. The BBG specific parts are released under a BSD license. Uh, BBG encoder is a BSD license as well. All right, so all the new code is BSD licensed. Uh, however, because he used some code from FFmpeg, it uh, that has got limited tainted GPL. with the LGPL <laughs> license. Okay, okay. But it means it's open for everybody to use yeah. uh, as a library. Yeah. Uh, and it relies on the HEVC video compression technology, which may be protected by patents in some countries. Well, way to get me excited about an image format for the first time in 15 but, years. Uh, also, most uh, newer phones and stuff will already have uh, hardware support for the HEVC uh, decoder. Right, mm -hmm. uh, like all newer phones are going to have uh, a fast decoder built in. So, uh, this is definitely going to be quite interesting. All right, Alan from the Never Going to Happen department. Ron Wyden introduces a bill to ban FBI backdoors in built-into tech products. Do you think it could yeah. happen? Specifically, the, the Secure Data Act would ban agencies from forcing manufacturers to alter their products to allow surveillance or searching. Because you know uh, that's kind of a uh, long been suspected of what happened with Skype, right? Is uh, eBay or uh, the Microsoft, the government got Microsoft to buy it so that they could build this features into it and stuff. Right. Um, and we've seen, you know, the government trying to force lots of different things to build wiretapping features into their communication apps. And uh, 
be nice to see that uh, that law passed, but I, yeah, I don't know that that's actually going to happen. Yeah, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to parse it right here. At the bottom of the article, they say that in the House of Representatives, uh, a, a representative took up the issue of uh, of government encryption earlier this year. She passed an amendment to the annual defense funding bill that bans requiring companies to install security vulnerabilities. So attaching it to the NDAA is a pretty good way to get it to pass. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we'll see. I'll, I'll I'll try to keep an eye on it and see what happens. Uh, yeah, that one will be interesting. Because, um, yeah, this is like, I feel like we're talking about the clipper chip all over again. Mm, yeah. Didn't we learn last time? You'd think. Uh, all right, uh, pilotonline.com uh, reports about uh, a man trying to take Ford carrier specs to Egypt. Ford carrier specs? What are Ford carrier uh, specs? Uh, and, uh, U.S. is building a new aircraft carrier named after President Ford. Ah, I was thinking Ford car companies. No, okay. this is... Uh, Gerald Ford. So trying to Gerald get Ford. out of the country with a USB thumb drive, Alan? <laughs> uh, they didn't say. But okay. uh, he was trying to sell it to uh, the government in Egypt, apparently. Well, they got a lot of, they got a lot of boats they're building in Egypt. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm, I'm sure the people in Egypt are just going to turn around and sell it to somebody else for yeah. even more money. Yeah, but, probably. Uh, yeah, he was a contractor working for the government and was uh, trying to sell uh, the aircraft carrier specs and faces... I think two or three counts of exporting government documents. That's a 20-year sentence for each. Okay. Our next story, uh, anytime I think of the DMCA, I think of what a train wreck it is. Uh, so an economist has recommended that the that Congress apparently needs to loosen up and allow people to hack the Digital Millennium Well, specifically, yes. Uh, the, uh, the Digital Millennium Cover Act uh, basically stops people from being able to... Tinker, in a way. Tinker, or just modify devices. Yeah, Technically, yeah. jailbreaking wasn't allowed, and then right. uh, finally the Library of Congress, the librarian there that's allowed to make exceptions, yes. added that as an exception. Yeah. So unlocking your phone so you can move it to a different carrier is allowed now. Uh, and they're suggesting that maybe, you know, when you buy a device, you should be able to tinker with it and make it do other things. That's how a lot of interesting things get invented. No kidding. Uh, and, you know, that's how an economy works. People have to invent new things. And if if you have to be a mega corporation to invent something, that's going to kill the economy. <laughs> well put, Alan. Way to summarize something that's been a, a, a battle for over a decade up in 30 seconds yeah. and make it pretty obvious why it's a dumb idea. Uh, all right. Now we have a alert coming from uh, the National Cyber Awareness System. This is right. not, so this this is is not a, a test. A, a, a CVE for Mantis, which is a bug tracking software uh, that I've used before, uh, and it has a CAPTCHA system for uh, to stop spam from getting in and so on. But it turns out that the CAPTCHAs are keyed off your public key, which is not secret. <laughs> and so <laughs> you can find out what the CAPTCHA would have, what the answer to the CAPTCHA is without having to read the CAPTCHA, so you can do automated attacks. Brilliant, brilliant. So there you go. All right. Uh, this next oh, one. I see this next story you had in there. I was just reading this. Uh, yeah. Didn't to put it in the well, show. so you're familiar with the K-Cups and the, the Keurig uh, K-Cup coffee system. Uh, yeah. And so they kind of invented this system and then there were many cheap copies. And uh, then they went they the way of the uh, to, uh, digital ink guys where they, where they, you know, they put like a, a, a DRM in the actual K-Cup uh, to right. make sure you can uh, only use legit they K-Cups. To, yeah. When you have a fancy K-Cup machine, they don't want you to be able to just buy the cheap cups of copy. They right. want, you know, they're trying to, it's, it's like, like ink. Razor blades they're making their money there. on the ink and then, and the razor blades. Right. Well, uh, security researchers have released a humorous vulnerability description for the Keurig 2.0 coffee maker, which includes the DRM. 
designed to only brew Keurig brand coffee pods. The Keurig 2.0 coffee maker contains a vulnerability in which the authenticity of coffee pods, known as K-cups, use weak verification methods, which are subject to spoofing attack through the reuse of a previously verified K-cup. The vulnerability description even includes mitigating controls, such as keeping the Keurig located in a cabinet when not in use. Yeah, so <laughs> they have credit. Uh, the proof of concept is available at keurighack.com. Yeah. The vulnerability write-up uh, is on my blog at caffeinesecurity.blogspot.com. Yes. Yes. So it's basically a spoof of the whole Heartbleed type thing of, of commercializing yeah. uh, the uh, yep. exploit. So step one is the attacker uses a genuine K-cup in the Keurig machine to okay. brew coffee or hot chocolate. Yeah. After the brewing is complete, the attacker removes the genuine K-cup from the Keurig and uses scissors or a knife or something to carefully remove the full foil lid from the K-cup, ensuring to keep all the edges intact. Oh, they even the have a video. The attacker then keeps this uh, for use in the attack. The attacker asserts uh, a cheap knockoff K-cup at, and closes the lid. The attacker uh, should receive an oops error message stating that this K-cup is not genuine. You cannot brew this. Uh, the attacker opens the Keurig, leaving the non-genuine K-cup in the Keurig and carefully places the previously saved genuine K-cup lid on top of the non-genuine K-cup lid, lining up the puncture hole to keep the lid in place. Right, So you don't keep puncturing it until it's not useful anymore. Uh, the attacker closes the Keurig and is able to brew coffee uh, using the non-genuine K-cup. Since there's no fix is currently available, <laughs> owners of Keurig 2.0 systems may wish to take additional steps to secure the device, such as keeping the device in a locked cabinet or using a cable lock to prevent the device from being pulled in when not being used by an authorized user. Uh, please note that the proof of concept is already available online. Yeah, and there's a video, too, that I've been playing while you've described it where they where they show the, uh, there you go, and it's accepting the bogus K-cup now. See, this is why I got the Keurig 1.0 before they introduced the DRM out. I couldn't handle it. So basically, this is uh, what you would call a replay attack. Uh, <laughs> Basically, if each K-cup had a unique ID, the machine would could like keep a list and cross. All right, that one's already been used. You can't use that one again. Right, uh, but right. But again, it, it just uses weak verification. Oh, I'm a genuine K-cup, so you just keep the, yeah. Right, yeah. They need an ID for each K-cup. Yeah. There you go. Well, but then you would have to have some flash memory in the coffee maker or something that would just keep a list of ones that invalidated. Why not have and it? Then- Require an internet an connection. Internet connection, yeah. and it could call home <laughs> right. and verify your cake. It could check with the coffee cloud before every coffee cup cloud. is brewed. But then the coffee cloud could be down because it's too early in the morning, and I haven't had coffee yet. <laughs> or and every then you can't no. have any coffee, Alan. When everybody makes their cup of coffee, it's going to DDoS the online server because everybody's yes, getting up in the morning. Every morning, <laughs> and and then it's going to cause an outage, and that's going to cause mass outage. And then nobody will get their coffee. Nobody goes to work, and the economy is brought to a grinding halt, all because of coffee DRM. Uh, all right, our last roundup of the day, open source for sensitive emails, an article over at opensource.com. What do we got here, Alan? Uh, yeah, so they're just talking about why, uh, for certain things, you should probably self-host your email with open source software. Yeah. Uh, you know, we often discuss the many benefits of open source software. Uh, the single most important factor, and, you know, one of the benefits is that it's open. Uh, this is actually at the heart of what software is, right? a community-driven software package that's full of transparency and so on. Uh, governments care about open source because it provides three benefits, right? Monetary savings, improved quality, and better security and privacy. Uh, the last benefit is often less than obvious, but equally important, right? So first, there's power in numbers, right? The open source community is one of the software's greatest assets. It provides, uh, you know, natural force multiplier, you know, the more people looking at it and so on. Uh, the community collective gathers insights and proactively identifies security risks and rapidly mitigates them. 
we definitely see in open source that when a bug is found, it's fixed much more quickly than with closed source. Yeah. Um, uh, trust is of utmost value, right? The openness of open source software is personified when organizations bring in their own third-party experts for security and privacy audits and can go as far as uh, to confirm the uh, efficacy of a patch, right? Um, so more people looking at it is better, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this extends to the ability to analyze code and ensure there are no skeleton keys or proprietary code or hidden anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So while you can trust open source software, it's trust but verify. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that comes back to power in numbers. The more people are doing it, uh, the more likely that somebody's verified it. And but you still need to go and look. But well, yeah. and and as uh, Shellshock showed us, you can have something that is around for a long time, but once it's identified, the rapid pace of improvement and 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 yeah. it, 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 for some people in the moment it can be confusing, but the end result is everybody's got you know a patch that's available to them almost immediately. If you think of, if you look at it in you know hindsight, it's really very impressive. Uh, okay. Wow. That brings us to the end of the and show. Then, oh, sorry, the last point there was just that mm. leverage is key, uh, and allows you know it gives you more control. Very true. Um, speaking of leverage, we're going to leverage two episodes next week. So we're going to start at 11 a.m. Pacific over at JBLive.tv, which mm-hmm. is uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. 11 a.m. Pacific is 4 p.m. Eastern. Oh no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. 11 a.m. would be 2 p.m. Eastern, All right. uh, which would be 1900 UTC. Okay. Uh, and you can also go to jblive.info for the audio only. We'd love to have your feedback. And uh, I know I've said it a couple of times, literally, but we also need your best of submissions. We really do. We really yes, need them. Please, please. I think Rekai is having an anxiety attack upstairs right show. now. I know. We will ruin TechSnap. TechSnap will be canceled if wow. there's no episode. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we missed a week? <sighs> That's on you. That audience. would just end. The, we would just stop. There would never be another. Text It'd be horrible. So do not kill the text now. <laughs> I wonder if that'll work. This would be a good. I should try this tactic on all the shows and see if it actually gets people to do it. I know. I know. I know. Uh, and you can only take people hostage so many times. That's true. Yeah. You know what? You wear out. You do wear it out. Uh, also, if you want to submit stories for the double session, because we we'll also need a lot of roundup stories, and it is the holiday season. Uh, you, you don't even have to. If you can't do a best of, you can't be here live, you can still help us out. Go to techsnap.reddit.com, submit stories or even community discussion pieces. We'll be looking for extra roundup material for our double recording session as well, techsnap.reddit.com. Also, don't forget RSS feeds for audio and video versions of TechSnap as well as torrent RSS feeds. So you can help us defer some of the bandwidth cost and just plug it into your favorite torrent feeder if you have one that does that. Not all the torrent ones do RSS, but a lot of them do. So that's also a couple of uh, easy ways to get the show every single week, and then you don't have to worry about missing an episode of TechSnap. All right, Alan, we'll have yourself a great week, and thank you, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of mm-hmm. TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.